Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Uh, We live in a fantastic place. And yet our community is also full of tremendous needs. Scott Mary helped me out on this. He sent me a quick summary of some of the biggest needs on the Westerville side of us. Currently, 38% of the Westerville School District lives at 200% of the poverty level or below. 12,000 families, 36,000 individuals. What that means is they get free and reduced lunches. And what the studies are showing is the people in that category struggle to afford a simple doctor visit. April 2016, the Columbus Batch did an article and noted that across all the Columbus suburbs since the year 2000, uh, those living at the poverty level or below went from 7 to 12 percent. Forty-five percent of those are single moms. The immigrant population, 18 percent live below the poverty level, and people with disabilities, 30 percent live below the poverty level. Actually, to create a better awareness for the effects of poverty in our community, Warm is actually co-sponsoring an event uh, coming up shortly on May 10th that I want to encourage you to consider being a part of to understand and gain more compassion and perspective as to what it really means in people's lives. There's also the heroin and opioid epidemic that is rampant. It's so substantive that 60 Minutes featured Columbus last year as the nationwide epicenter of the heroin epidemic. There are just, these are just a a picture, just a few of the teens from the suburbs who have died from overdoses in just the last couple of years in our area. And there's many, many, many more. Franklin County actually averages in excess of 100 people a week being treated at hospitals for overdose on heroin. 500 deaths in Franklin County alone last year. In Ohio, as in Columbus, the problem actually affects all ages. It's not particular as to what age. It's every single age range. We could go on for hours about these needs and many others uh, if we're just even just trying to summarize them. And, and, And I don't know about you, but when I start looking at stuff like that, the needs quickly become overwhelming. And yet what I want us to walk away with today is this invitation that God is making to us to make a difference, to change that. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You and I being here today is the result of people 2,000 years ago doing such a good job following this command and people all across the ages following this great commandment. There have been lots of forces trying over the centuries, trying to crush Christianity. Even today in America, uh, it's more openly hostile to the Christian faith than ever before. But the more pressure, the more God seems to grow His church. And honestly, I believe we as a church are right on the cusp of recapturing the joy and the power of what it really means to follow and be like Jesus. This command is actually fascinating to me to look at because 
Just think about this. Jesus, just having been beaten to death, standing there now alive before his disciples, says all authority in heaven and earth, not, not just the authority in his family, his company, his neighborhood, his town, or his state, or his nation, all authority in heaven and on earth. And this Jesus, the one who healed people and raised them from the dead, who calmed the storm, who the one who knew people's thoughts and knew what was going to happen before it happened, the one who had authority over the demonic evil in the world, the one who himself rose from the dead, all that power and authority and more. So notice where Jesus goes next. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Therefore, because of that authority, you go and make disciples of all nations. I think encapsulated in that word go is the most intense of all human desires. It's the desire to make a difference. The desire for our life to be meaningful, to be engaged in something bigger than ourselves, to be on the winning team. All of that is caught up in this word go. And God is saying, yes, you and every one of you, I designed you for a purpose behind which all of my authority will flow. To do what? To go and make disciples. To invite and influence people to receive God's immeasurable love for them and to follow Jesus and join that same mission of loving our neighbors as ourselves and being like Jesus. You might be asking, well, go and make disciples. Well, where? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, no, no, really, where are we supposed to go? Yeah, the answer is yes. Remember last week we learned from Jesus that your neighbor is whoever you run into. Each and every day you are sent by God with all of the authority of him behind you to everyone you meet today, tomorrow, and the next day. Jesus starts this saying, all authority has been given him as you follow him. And he ends saying it, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are pretty strong bookends to support us in fulfilling this command. God wants you to remember that promise as you walk each day and as you love your neighbors each day because some days it's going to be really hard to carry the burdens of those around us. It's going to be challenging. You'll feel too weak. You're just going to want to climb in your hole and escape and and, and go into your cave. But Jesus is saying, just, I want you to know, I want you to know that I'm with you. All my power is with you. All my authority is with you as you walk more today and into what it means to go and as we talk about this more about what it means to go and love our city let's begin today with an early christian history lesson about what this word go looked like rodney stark a historian and sociologist wrote a book called the rise of christianity one of the most profound things he notes in this book is that the, how the followers of jesus loved their roman cities stark notes when great plagues of disease broke out across the roman empire people were afraid to visit anyone so much so that many families died the entire household died without a single visitor coming to care for them But there were also records from the emperor, from the government officials, secular historians of the day that painted a very different picture about the Christians. Starks writes, most Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, 
departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this manner. Many elders and ministers did as well. The consequences of all this is that the pagan survivors faced a greatly increased odds of conversion after they recovered because of how greatly increased their attachment was to Christians. That sounds like relationships are the mission. That sounds like living life as friends with faith, doesn't it? He's saying that unbelieving neighbors government officials, people who had been against Christians, who had persecuted them when they became ill, personally experienced Christians coming to them and loving them and caring for them and even dying to care for them. Why? Because those Christians knew God's love and they loved their neighbors as themselves. Now, compare this example to some given to uh, Christian leaders by officials in Denver, Colorado a couple years ago. It's written in a book, and they said, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community of Denver. So what do you think our city officials would say in our community? Would we be different? I mean... With all the level of need around us increasing, are we really different? Now, there's actually some good news in this. I just heard uh, this this morning, uh, the Mayor Ginter from Columbus came to about 120 churches a little over a year ago saying, would you please pray for our skyrocketing murder rates? And since then, the murder rates have gone down. One of the most powerful moments I, and beautiful moments I've seen is the, is the image of how our community came together when two of our very own officers were shot and killed. But the question we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis is how deeply do we continue to live in a way that supports our values of caring our neighbor, for our neighbors post-tragedy? How good are we at loving our neighbors who, because of pain and dysfunction in their lives, are at risk of becoming those next shooters? See, when we live like Jesus in our community, when we hear people say, uh, what they'll, we'll hear people say about us, I may not believe exactly like those Christians believe, but I'm sure glad they're here because our community is such a better place to live because of our churches, because of the Christians. So, God says, Go. Love and disciple as many. But so often we feel like, I can't go because I don't have anything to give. But God has a history of asking people to do things that feel well beyond their grasp. All we have to do is go to Moses. I mean, Moses said, God, don't send me. I can't talk in front of people. And Moses goes anyway. We know the story. God comes to Gideon. Gideon says, I can't go. I'm from the lowest of families and the lowest of clans and the lowest of tribes. And God says, go anyway. And he rescues all of Israel and brings them to victory and peace because of what God does through him. And then there's the woman whose husband died of a famine. And then we see her about to make her last meal for her and her child to eat before they die. And along comes Elijah. And Elijah says, make me something to eat. And she did. And God provided for her and they lived and thrived. Maybe one of the most beautiful stories, I think, is Jesus in the New Testament. He has this multitude of people, about fifteen to 20,000 people out in the wilderness listening to him. And Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to feed him. And his disciples look at him, you're crazy. And then this one little boy comes forward with five loaves and two fishes. And he says, I don't have much. Now, that's an understatement, right? 
I don't have much. And look what Jesus did. It was like a Thanksgiving meal with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. God uses what you have. Now, I think about this story, and I I think in my mind, out of all those people, only one little boy had something. Now, I'm sure there were others who had some scraps of food, but all God needed was one person who said, I don't have much, but I'll give you what I have, God. See, God always invites you to focus more on what you do have and not on what you don't have. Another reason we can feel like we can't go is because we think, well, I have too many needs myself, right? And if, so if we were to go back two weeks, uh, and if you're here two weeks ago, you recall Jeremiah said to the people that they would eventually return to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile, and they did. And when they returned to Jerusalem, they quickly forgot how they were to seek the peace and prosperity of their community to love God and to love others with their life. It became very self-centered in their focus to recover in all their needs. And God speaks through Haggai to expose their short-sightedness. He says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. In other words, take an inventory. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in them. God says to the people, you're putting yourselves first, not God first. And as a result, you work hard and you have nothing to show for it. Your money is like sticking money in pockets with holes in. It never seems to be enough. So take assessment, God's saying. Take assessment of your life. You're no longer living a life of impact. You're investing your time and money in yourself, but not realizing the meaningful, eternal impact that God has designed you to be on earth for. Now, that's not easy. If you're like me, it's really hard to not wake up every morning and think about yourself. I get up and it's hard to get out of myself and think about the needs of other people. And especially as you get older, as your kids start to get older and more self-sufficient, it's so easy to think, I paid my dues, now life can be a lot more about me, right? That's just natural for us. The problem is, when I look back at my life on all the times I wanted to quit something or the difficult times in my life, the common denominator has almost always been I was thinking about myself, I was focused on how hard life was for me and my needs, not on how God wanted me to love others. God certainly does want to meet each and every one of our needs. And often, though, one of the ways he does that is through serving other people because we reap what we sow. We sow love, we reap love. We sow joy, we reap joy. We sow generosity, we reap generosity. Even counseling research shows us that altruistic acts increase happiness and meet so many of the most important basic needs of our life. Getting your needs met and serving most of the time go hand in hand. So, the other question, how do we go? 1 John 3 says it this way, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So there's this famous quote attributed to St. Francis, which kind of goes along with this. I suspect you've heard it. Maybe you've even said it. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Right? See, I think this quote helps us remember that love looks like action, not just words. 
It also has some moderating effect to reel in the misguided people who have gone way too far on their word soapboxes, being hellfire and brimstone, annoying bullhorn preachers, therefore making us sharing faith with other people much harder than it could needed to be. But this quote can and too often is used as a cop-out because it tells us what we want to hear to give us an excuse to do what we feel is most comfortable, to form a good argument of why we don't share our faith in word with other people, to help us stop honestly feeling guilty about the fact that we don't share our faith through our words with other people. See, the truth is, the consensus of scholars is that that, this quote did not originate with St. Francis. And further, it wasn't even in line with the practice of St. Francis, who is described as preaching up to five times a day in the square, in the fields, as you walk through the towns. St. Francis is also described as such a passionate preacher that many say he was so animated when he preached, it looked like he was dancing. On a personal level, I look at this and, and I reflect on word and deed and Honestly, I have to admit the biggest change moments in my life have not been from physical acts of service people did for me, from the deeds. The biggest change moments in my life have been words of love and affirmation spoken over me, words of God's good plan, that God loved me and God had a really good plan for me. Words are so powerful. See, we can say we love Jesus, but if we never tell people how much, how much Jesus loves us and how much we love Jesus in clear ways and how much Jesus loves them, we can do all the ambitious works we want and be not any different than any other nice person. We could just as well take Christian out of our name and we could be the Red Cross or the Peace Corps or any other do-good organization in the world. See, the gospel cannot be fully communicated without opening our mouths nor can it be fully communicated with words alone. Sharing the gospel, being about God's mission, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to go involves both words and deeds. So let's get even more specific. You wake up every morning at 6 or 5 or 6 or 7, whatever time, and if you're 5 o'clock, you have two cups of coffee and you're ready for the day, and maybe that includes getting up your kids, getting your kids up and packing their lunches and getting them off to school. You go to work, you work really hard all day, you come home and you come home to a really busy pace trying to keep up with all the family obligations and the friend obligations and the home maintenance, everything going on. In the midst of the pressure of that daily routine, how do you live? What does go look like in the midst of that? What does loving your neighbor as yourself and seeking the peace and prosperity of the community look like in that? What does loving in word and deed look like in that kind of life? First, I think it looks like a mindset change of becoming mothers and fathers of the community, owning that idea. Now, this is one area that God's been really working in Wendy in particular, and, and me as well, but especially Wendy. God's been speaking to her about what it means to be a mother and a father of a community. Now, for some of us, those are difficult words for several reasons. Some of us have mother and father baggage. We had some difficult pain in our experience there, so those are just hard terms for us to relate to. For others of us, Especially if you're young, you think of being a mother and a father of the community, and that, to take that on, it sounds pompous, right? Because, because you're not old enough. You gotta be old. Or, or you gotta be like, you gotta go into politics, or, or be this big benefactor, or be this big, well-loved public figure to be that. If any of those 
difficulties come up in your mind, I wanted to try to put those aside for a moment and just think about this idea. How do really good mothers and fathers look at things differently? How could that change your mindset each and every day towards the community? See, mothers and fathers don't look at their children as commodities that give them something. They look at them as something we give something to, regardless of what's going on. That love and privilege of the responsibility of being a mother, father, actually gives us confidence. It gives us drive. It gives us focus to seek the peace and prosperity of others at all costs. God wants us to look at our community with that kind of a sense of being a mother and a father to our community around us, leveraging our influence, our talents, our strengths for the good of the community, personally and in our business and as a church. Second, we do need to share the good news in our words. Uh, There can be so much anxiety around this for so many of us, but it's really not that complex. You don't have to be offensive and confrontational. You don't even have to know a a whole lot about theology and apologetic arguments to begin sharing the good news and God's love for other people in word. It can actually simply start off by praying. When someone has a need, offer to pray for them. Even, Even if you don't pray for them on the spot, just say, I'll pray for you and then pray for them on your own. Or, or, or if they're facing a difficult decision or, or situation, ask them, how would you like me to pray for this? And then just listen caringly. And, and as they define their core need and the, and the want that they are asking God for or, or for the situation for. And then follow up with them regularly. How's it going? What's God doing? Uh, where's, where's the decision? How can I pray for you more? It, it may, I realize it, you may get the people who respond to that question saying, I don't believe in prayer. Well, if you get somebody who says that, say something like this. That's fine. I'm not asking you to believe in God. I just want to know how I can care for you and how I can pray for you. And in my experience, even with atheist friends of mine, they will go, wow, that's really kind. Would you pray for me in this? That's really funny to have an atheist say, would you pray for me? But they do. I want to encourage you as trust in the relationship is built even from there. If you're in a setting where it wouldn't be awkward or weird or uncomfortable to anyone else, offer to pray for them right then and there and speak God's love over them as you pray for them. Say say something like, God, thank you that you love Bill so much and you want to be with him in this difficult situation. Then just pray over the situation they want you to pray for. So sharing by word also involves the simplicity of sharing your story of God's love. Now, don't turn this into having this big formal testimony you have to give. It can just be as simple as when God answers a prayer, just sharing your excitement about that with someone else. Or it can be reflecting on how God brought you through a, a really difficult situation because of His love and, and your church family's love. You got through it better than you ever thought you would. Or, or it can be a moment of sharing how you felt like God spoke to you in a in a moment of need. Sharing by word can also be as simple as affirming God's goodness in others. See, remember, no matter how much sin has damaged someone's life, they were originally made very good by God for a very good purpose, and He's given everyone gifts 
And it can be such an empowering, affirming moment to, to just go to somebody and say, it is so cool and wonderful how God has made you. And then just tell them how wonderfully they're made. Whatever talent they have. Be excited about who they are and how they're growing. God is at work in that. So when you can highlight God's work in them, that's beautiful, it's powerful. I remember Wendy did this one time with one of her friends, a simple affirmation of one of her bisexual agnostic friends that she had years ago. Initially, her response was, come on, Wendy, that isn't God. But God's Spirit was at work in that affirmation. And, and for this, this woman, the thought of this friend God being involved in her life, it was a powerful, impacting moment going, I wonder if that really was God. See, you have to remember, the Holy Spirit often touches people in moments like that. So it isn't just you affirming the person in that moment. The Holy Spirit is also there and active. And sharing in word and deed further also involves the simplicity of conversing about faith and truth and meaning and morals and ultimate reality. But even that doesn't have to always be this big debate. I don't know if you had the chance to watch the movie The Case for Christ. It's based on the life of Lee Strobel, an award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune who was at the time an avowed atheist. It's a fascinating movie about his journey to faith in Jesus, and it involves lots of challenging questions and f- about faith and apologetics, discussions of good and evil, love and justice, Jesus and the resurrection. But, but I thought one of the most interesting things was how so much of, of, of Lee's journey and, and his questions weren't answered because of people debating with him or giving him better answers, but because of people listening to Lee's arguments and asking him challenging questions and encouraging him in a way that he would continue his pursuit of answers on his own. The other thing that I thought the Case of Christ the movie did really well was it illustrated the truth that we can never be more concerned, we should, we should be more concerned about helping the other person's journey than closing the deal. See, so much of how uh, faith was shared in the past with people was this sales pitch whose goal was to get a sale, close the deal, just get them saved. And sure, we want to see people make a decision to follow Jesus. But as true friends, as people who truly love, we want that decision to be a decision that they own and they're ready to make. To push people to make a decision sooner than they really are ready is neither being a true friend nor is it loving them because love always respects the other person's journey and respects the will of the other person. See, our friendship with others must be genuine love and genuine friendship. We can never look at people as a salvation project. Maybe For some of you, your first step in sharing your faith with your friends who aren't followers of Jesus might be to simply sit down with them over a cup of coffee and say, hey, we've been friends for a long time, and I really, really enjoy who you are, and I enjoy our friendship. I would never want to pressure you, but I want you to really know me as your friend. And I want you, I want to know you as my friend. And we honestly, we don't ever talk about the things that are most important 
in our lives. We never talk about our beliefs and our faith. And if you're going to really know me, you need to know my faith. And and if I'm going to really know you, I need to know yours as well. And, And then you just simply start by asking him, what do you believe? Tell me, what's your faith journey been? And how is that important or not important in your life? And even if you disagree with where they're at, there's so much in that conversation to be able to just encourage them in their pursuit of truth, just affirm them in their pursuit and be their biggest fan in that pursuit of truth. I think the biggest barrier today in sharing our faith through words is how loudly our culture screams at us that it is politically incorrect to do so. If telling someone they are awesomely loved and awesomely made, and God loves them even in their failure and sin, and he so desperately wants to be in their life and for them to receive his forgiveness. He wants to be in their life to empower them to have a meaningful life that is better than they can ever imagine. If that's politically incorrect, then I want to be that kind of encouraging, affirming, believing in another person kind of politically incorrect. Don't you? I mean, living life as friends with faith means our friendships are deep enough and safe enough to talk about the things that matter most to us, even beliefs. What kind of friendship, I mean, really honestly, what kind of friendship do we really have if we can't talk about those types of things? So the second way we love in word and deed is through hospitality. Throughout the Old and New Testament, this word hospitality comes up all the time. We're commanded to be hospitable, and it doesn't mean we become all Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray in life. The Bible and hospitality in the Bible doesn't mean cool centerpieces, that your house has to be perfectly clean and awesomely decorated, that you have to have the best serving ware and amazing food all presented in a beautiful way. What biblical hospitality means is you take your time, those moments you have in life, to care for strangers, fellow believers, for immigrants, for orphans, to care for your five, your unchurched and unbelieving friends that you're praying for. It's an openness to sharing our lives with others in meaningful ways. See, if we live biblical hospitality, then... The world is never going to be able to accuse us of many of the things they accuse us of. It could never accuse the church of racism because we would have so many different peoples of different races and cultures in our homes eating and playing games and having fun together. We would be advocating for justice and equality, not just in our words, but by whom we spend our time with and who we personally love. I love that. Many among us here are seeking to understand more how racism is still all too much alive in our lives and how to defeat that. Recently, someone referred me to a book uh, from within Quest who a friend of theirs in a Quest referred them to, and I don't know how many chains it goes back of people referring this, but it's the book Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. This book was written back in the 1930s. Uh, revisited in the 1970s. It was a major influence on Martin Luther King. And it is still extremely applicable and enlightening today. It is an insightful discussion of the perspective of how the dominant culture is not able to fully see how deeply the effects of racism affect others. And within that, one of the more fascinating things is how it helps you understand Jesus and his message even better. It is so helpful. 
I love it as well that we're willing to be open to look at ourselves within this and others and try to understand so that we can be the difference. I love how other people at Quest are trying to answer the issues of poverty in our area by trying to, we're planning a meal. You can find out more of these things coming up in May and how you could be a part of that. But it's more than just serving a meal. It's trying to build friendships with people struggling with poverty right in our own backyard in a way that we can help them and be a friend over the long term to help them find a way to be more self-sufficient in their incomes and their lives and prosperous in their lives. I love I love our youth group. I got to tell you, our youth group emphasizes loving across cliques that would normally separate and alienate teens from one another. And we may not have the biggest youth group yet, but I would suggest that we'd be in the running for the healthiest youth group in terms of the kids learning to love God and be really good friends who work really hard to make other kids feel included and wanted instead of left out. The third way that we love in word and deed is through faithful presence. A story is told of a new convert to Jesus coming to the great reformer Martin Luther. He came to him and said, Hey, I just became a Christian. Tell me how I'm supposed to faithfully serve the Lord. And Luther asked him, Well, what, what do you do? And he said, Well, I'm a, I make shoes. To which Luther then replied, Well, then make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. The man kind of looked puzzled. And Luther responded. He said, Well, what did you think I was going to tell you? Do you think I was going to tell you to stop making shoes and go to seminary and become a pastor? No. Be faithfully present with all of your family and friends and customers. Make your life attractive. Make a really good shoe. Sell it at a fair price. Treat people with respect and love and kindness and walk in humility even when you're successful. Was Luther's advice. When John says in 1 John 3, Dear children, let us not love in words or in speech, but with actions and in truth. His point is that we recognize the importance of both words and deed. You allow your deeds to reinforce your words and your words to reinforce your deeds. Why? So that your life can be full of meaning and powerful impact and influence for Jesus. Dorothy Sayers is an author and was a friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and wrote something that speaks, I think, to what we're talking about today and what this whole series is about. Sayers notes that in World War II, a profound impact happened on how people viewed work. She says, during World War II, one of the great surprises that many of us had in the army was that we found ourselves for the very first time in our lives happy. Imagine that in the army, in a war, for the first time happy. Why? Because for the first time in our lives, we found ourselves doing something not for pay because the work of war was miserable, not for the social standing because all the different classes were thrown together, but for the sake of working together to get something done for the benefit of everyone. We love our city. How can this mindset that shifted in this World War II with this common purpose change us today. You see, regardless of whether our jobs seem purposeful or not, work is valuable. It blesses 
our community. Within our community, so many of you I know have this intentional mindset of leveraging your profession for God's plan of bringing peace and prosperity. We have financial planners and people who love to help people in finances who sit down with people whose finances are anything but peace and they help them devise a better plan. We have social workers and teachers who help children and families in difficult times. We have doctors and nurses and hairstylists who see their clients as people God has called them to care for and pray for. We have firefighters who navigate people through traumatic experiences and small business owners that I know who use their businesses to intentionally strengthen our city. People are leveraging their influence. You guys are leveraging your influence and skills and talents all for the good of our areas. We see what Dorothy Sayers was referring to about those who worked in World War II. Even though it was miserable, they worked together to get something done for the benefit of everyone. And that brings joy. And more than economic benefit, more than great, the great mobilizing force that a threat like war can be, the greatest mobilizing force, the greatest meaning in life is sharing God's love that every single person would know how deeply loved they are, how awesome God has made them, how beautiful they are, how wanted and valued they are. There is nothing more worthwhile than sharing that kind of news with others. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we love you. Lord, we we stand in awe at your love for us. Lord, I pray that you would lead each and every one of us past the barriers that sometimes we recognize and sometimes we don't recognize that keep us from sharing your love with others. Lord, I pray that you would maximize that joy in our lives. That you would teach us to be the people that are constantly telling others how amazing God made them and how wonderful God you think about them and how, and how much you want to be a part of their life and how you want to forgive them and, and how you don't, you, you don't hesitate at all to pick them up and give them meaning even when they're still messing up. You just love us so much, God. I pray that you would teach us to share that in such a way that there would be no one in our community who would feel lonely, no one in our community who would feel unwanted, no one in our community who would feel not good enough. Would you give us that joy? And Lord, we'll give you the worship and the glory back in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.